mean, am I ready? Man, am I ready? All right, uh, hello, test, one, two, three, four. Oh, look at that modulation. Look at that VU meter leaping up. What a sense of power. 50,000 fantastic, tremendously modulated watts rolling out over 6,000 million miles of poor, unsuspecting country. Hello, test. One, two. Oh, I'm in charge. There we go, Ken. Oh, Big Daddy's on the scene. Oh, oh you mean Big Daddy? Why? Or do you prefer a little brother, eh? begin with uh, tonight a cultural note from one of our spies out there. Uh, slob art is moving forward and uh, we have a note that in Toms River, New Jersey there is a lawn that has a life-size statue of the Jolly Green Giant. And uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's true. It's a, it's a typical Jersey bungalow in a rank weedy garden an eight-foot-tall plaster statue of the Jolly Green Giant. That just about puts all those pink concrete flamingos right out of business, man. This could start a whole new trend. I can just see a tremendous life-size statue of the Lady Plumber. And, uh, you know, a Gene... <laughs> oh, sure, yeah. I, I'm wondering why somebody didn't bring out Mr. Clean wristwatches. You know, with that bald head pointing to what time it is. So, uh, there's, oh, uh, speaking of this slob art, uh, we also received as part of our our uh, usual quota of junk mail in the past week. I've sometimes, when I walk in the office, I'm up to me blooming knickers in junk mail. You know, various promos, one kind or another. And uh, I see they're, they're coming out with a movie called Anzio, you know? You know, the movie about the landings at Anzio? And so they're having a big contest called the Anzio Sweepstake. <laughs> I mean, this is, can you imagine some poor guy getting shot in the head with a shrapnel uh, a couple of centuries ago at the Anzio? Didn't realize he's starting a big game. And uh, you can uh, win trips and everything. I imagine uh, this uh, will be followed by the Corregidor Sweepstakes or the uh, Baton Death March Puzzle Contest. But, uh, <laughs> I could see that one, too. I kind of like the Pearl Harbor sweepstakes. That would be kind of nice, you know. Um, yeah, match the flight leaders with the deck of the Arizona and all that. So, you know, it's it's Saturday, friends. And, uh, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm telling you, I'm, a, I'm in a real mood. Oh, I'm a you know, bad scenesville here, friends. Uh, this isn't the uh, Jolly Green Giant. So uh, I've got all kinds of terrible <clears throat> things going here. Just a minute. Oh, what a sound. Listen to that. Ah, yes, indeed. It's holiday season. Covering up here fast. Oh, I tell you, the madness, the nuttiness is beginning to sweep the country. 
You know how it is every Christmas. Oh, I'll tell you, I've already gotten my first three obscene Christmas cards. Have you noticed that obscenity is creeping into the Christmas card world big? Oh, I'll tell you, I got one that suggests terrible things about Santa Claus. And uh, doesn't suggest them, it says them. You know, there it is right there for all to see. And uh, can you imagine a guy getting nabbed by the postal department while he's sending out his Christmas cards this year? because of mailing obscene mail <laughs> through the mail. Oh, yeah, and I got another one that says something very, very bad about the three wise men, especially the one in the middle there, the one with the big crown on it. So I don't know. Oh, please, if you will. Come on, come on, Mac, if you will. I think we're going to have to salute the man and his mark. Come on, let's go. Let's go. Here we go. We're going to big. Salute to Ben Bernie. Well, hell you. Hello, hello. Boy, the gain has fallen off badly. I don't know what's happening to poor old John's. Uh, poor old John's uh, amplifier here, I'll tell you. I think it still hasn't gotten over the shock of that one historic show that he did. And this thing just doesn't work anymore, <laughs> I'll tell you. Oh, and the saints, when the saints, when the saints go marching in. Well, I'm going to tell you, friends. Oh, yeah, it's happening everywhere. And uh, the other day I'm having lunch with this friend of mine, uh, you know, real official Madison Avenue type, you know, the kind of guy that wears the little turned-up hat brim, the Italian style. He's got a nipped-in waist uh, overcoat with a velvet collar. You know, the, the whole business, you know, the regimental tie and all. And uh, we're sitting in this uh, Chinese restaurant, knocking down the egg rolls. And uh, <laughs> he, he says, oh, boy, he says, I, 
I just had an exciting time. Now, it's the beginning of the story. Now, you stick with me. He says, uh, boy, did I have an exciting time today. And I said, well, what did you do? And I could see the cheeks were just glowing. You know, he was just so pleased. And uh, his eyes were, were gleaming. His little old tail was bushy. He's a real bushy-tailed type. And uh, he says, uh, had an exciting day. I said, well, come on, Bob. I can tell you're popping with it. What is it? What did you do? He said, oh, boy. You know, some guys like to milk their exciting moments. You know, they keep you sitting there. And he says, oh, wowee. Boy, I'll tell you. I did something I always wanted to do. Yes, sir. I said, all right. What was it? And he said, well, uh, you're going to love this. If there's anything I hate, it's guys that start out a story by telling you, you're going to love this. Oh, yeah? Or they'll start out, they'll hit you between the shoulder blades and say, hey, Charlie, I'll tell you, I heard the funniest story. This is such a funny story. It is such a funny, funny story. Automatically, my brain turns off. Automatically. Any guy that tells me the joke he's going to tell me is funny before he tells it to me is suspicious that it ain't funny. That's why he's telling you it is funny. See? <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, no good joke teller ever tells the people that his joke is going to be good before he tells it. And no good storyteller ever says, oh, do I have a story to tell you? Oh, it's just unbelievable. It's great. He just start telling the story. And so I'm sitting there, I'm on edge. And you know, as a professional storyteller, I'll tell you a little secret. I keep getting bugged at my friends for being such bad storytellers. <laughs> you know, that must, that must affect painters. That must, can you imagine, uh, well, just can you imagine, uh, let's say, uh, Daryl Zanuck. He's going to this friend of his, you know, they're having a little dinner, and the friend says afterwards, he says, hey, listen, Daryl, listen, I got my 8-millimeter films back of the trip we took to Fort Lauderdale. I just want to show up there. Can you imagine? <laughs> Daryl Zanuck sitting there. Oh, <laughs> I can just see him, uh, you know, out of, out of sheer force of habit. If you've ever sat around these big film tycoons, they're always observing their rushes in these darkened rooms all by themselves with a couple of secretaries sitting around all scared, you know, with the little lights, with the, with the, with the uh, you know, they always have a notebook ready to take down the slightest whim of the great man, and he's watching the screen up there, and the first thing he says, wait, hold it, hold it, picks up the phone. So, uh, run that shot again. Who the hell shot that? You know an entire department is about to be fired. He has just leveled the entire creative film department, which has filmed at the cost of $17 million, 32 seconds of film on the island of Crete. It is going down the drain. Get rid of that! And get rid of all them guys that shot it! Automatically, you can see poor little ladies waiting in line with their husbands at the unemployment office. And, you know, well, it's not easy, you see, when you're, when you're a professional in any field. Which, uh, and it's a field that most people think they can master very well, you see. The average guy gets his little 8-millimeter Instamatic camera. Uh, five minutes later, he thinks he's Kazan. And uh, he does. Oh, yeah. 
You don't think for a minute that stopped Warhol that he can't shoot movies. He's out there shooting them. And since most people don't know good from bad, they go to see them. So uh, ultimately, it's the blind leading the blind over the cliff, you know, one way or the other. Oh, I know. If, if there's one, there must be 15,000 uh, housewife-type ladies in the suburbs listening to me right now who really believe that uh, next to Picasso, they come. They come just between Dufy and Picasso. Uh, <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah, there's more and more ladies out there. And, you know, they're painting little flowers and dogs and stuff. And uh, uh, I'm usually on velvet. Uh, some of them specialize in cats and, uh, you know, write letters to Peggy. And, uh, you know, you, you wind up, <laughs> the world of amateurs is just uh, terrible. And I, for those of you who want to tell stories, I'm going to have to give you a few little lessons out here. Uh, if you're curious about that, you know, I, I shouldn't say this, but uh, there is a right way and a wrong way to tell stories, friend. And the wrong way is to hit a guy between the shoulder blades, knocking his cigar right down his teeth, and say, Charlie, what a funny story I got. It's about this, you know, the Polish guy. You want to hear a really funny Polish story? Hey, Charlie, wow. Well, I, mean, I could tell you the one about the brains and, uh, you know, the used brain market and all that. I could tell you these stories. I'm not going to do it. And uh, I told one of them the other day to a friend of mine, and, uh, you know, in that casual, offhand way, and this chick swallowed three ice cubes. Uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so you got to know how to tell these stories. And, and uh, my friend is milking it, see? He's saying to you, boy, waiter, you hear what I did. It is so exciting. Here, let's order a drink. Uh, waiter, bring me a drink. Uh, Singapore Sling. Of course, when a you know, Chinese restaurant, somehow Singapore Sling has something to do with China. Uh, Singapore Sling, please. And so now we got two of these terrible monstrosities. I don't know whether you've ever drunk a Singapore Sling at, at uh, 1202 uh, in the, at noon. It's just a terrible drink for noontime. But, you know, some people don't know that. So we're sitting there drinking the Singapore Sling. It's got little cherries and apples and grapes and a little pagoda on the top of it, little Chinese flags all over it, you know, and I'm trying to drink this garbage. And uh, he is saying to me, now, I want you to relax. I just want to tell you what I did. I says, Bob, you son of a... That's been blipped out. You have been telling me... Uh, I should blip it myself. You son of a... Oh, you... <laughs> I do it pretty good, don't I? Yeah, and I said, you know, you've been trying to tell me this story now for 25 minutes. I ate seven egg rolls. I can't stand egg rolls. That guy fries them in kerosene back there. I don't care whether it is northern Chinese kerosene. It's kerosene. I've been sitting here now. I'm drinking this this thing here. It's got a, look at a claw sticking out of it. A claw sticking out I said, I'm drinking a Singapore sling. And uh, I want to hear what you've done. I mean, did. <laughs> he says, you see, moments of high excitement, I have a tendency to... Uh, lose my grip on uh, the more correct uh, Princetonian syntax. And I says, tell me the story, will you? He says, all right. And he comes from a very nice background. You know, there's a certain kind of person here in the, the East. Uh, boys camp in Bar Harbor, Maine. You know, that kind of thing. That's roughing it, see. Uh, uh, the family home... Uh, on the island off uh, off uh, Rockport, you know, that kind of thing. A Lawrenceville Academy, you know. Uh, <laughs> Yale, oh, the whole, you know, the whole crew, see. And these guys wind up by writing uh, 
uh, realistic plays, you see, the kind of thing. And, uh, oh, sure, you know, it's uh, the Odette syndrome. And so he, uh, he, says, uh, he says, I want to tell you what I did. I said, what did you do, Bob? Now, let's be calm here. I said, you've stopped hiccuping. Now you can talk. And he said, all right. Ever since I was a little kid, I, he didn't say it that way, you know, with the Lawrenceville Academy background. I said, ever since I was a child. Uh, these guys play handball a lot, too. I've noticed that. That's, that is a game that is not played in Griffith, Indiana. They play handball and badminton. This is a... <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, and they're almost always horse cuckoos. Uh, they, they, yes, they are. Uh, let's be honest. That's part of it, too. And uh, they go to certain things, like they go to the National Antiques Show at the Garden or at the Coliseum. Uh, they have a tendency also to be latent stamp collectors. They collect stamps. They, uh, uh, they, they, uh, there's, there's another thing they do. They collect coins. And, of course, these things just aren't done in Indiana Harbor, Indiana. Not much. They do collect coins in Indiana Harbor, Indiana, but they're usually nickels and dimes, which they put in a ball canning jar, <laughs> your coin collection, see. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I'm with one of those guys. Very nice fellow. You know, one of the nice. He's, he has, he's got Oxford gray jockey shorts on. He's a very well-dressed man, Brooks Brothers and all of it. And he says, I have had, ever since I was a child, and he loves William Buckley. This crowd usually loves Buckley. And they'll tell you, of course I'm not a right winger. I just love his style and his wit. I love his cutting wit. And uh, don't you believe it. Uh, <laughs> if, 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 if Buckley was on the left, they wouldn't love him for his cutting wit. And so he says, uh, ever since I was a child, I had... A wonderful, a, a kind of a desire, and uh, I don't know why this is, but I've had a desire to buy a pickup truck. I said, what? Yes, uh, I don't know. It's just uh, so exciting, you know, the idea of buying a pickup truck. And uh, today, I, I, uh, I did it. I, I just went right out, and I bought one, and I bought it for, for Marsha. Uh... Uh, Marsha has always wanted a pickup truck, and by God, I went out and bought her one today, and, and it was so much fun because, you know, has it occurred to you, Jane, that, uh, old man, you know, that there's something very real about a pickup truck? I said, no, it hasn't occurred to me. I, of course, immediately my background spent driving pickup trucks for a living, did not... <laughs> I didn't want to mention that to him. He said, you know, there's something very real about a pickup truck, you know. And uh, ever since we bought that old farm uh, up in Vermont, uh, Marsha's wanted a pickup truck. And, uh, you know, they make them with air conditioning now. And uh, you can get a wonderful one that has an automatic transmission. Of course, you know Marsha just will not accept a stick shift. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, ever since uh, I've been racing at Bridgehampton, I just cannot drive a car unless it does have a stick shift. And by God, I'll, uh, I just uh, I just say that, uh, well, nevertheless, uh, you know, I, I got this one with the automatic transmission. It has uh, automatic window razors and has power steering, power brakes. Just marvelous. And uh, they were able to make it uh, with uh, the uh, 
uh, naga hide upholstering and uh, alligator, you know. And it's just a wonderful, something very real about a pickup truck. And Marsha wanted one, and by God, I bought one today. Now, what do you think of that? Well, I says, that's fine. That's part of the noble savage tradition, ladies and gentlemen, in our life. That uh, today you find uh, young executives in their early 30s who are going back to the roots of America. And uh, they buy themselves a $700 Goya guitar to learn to play Red River Valley. And uh, they're, uh, oh yes, they're doing all this. I know one guy who has an early American color television set. And, uh, you know, in the, in the Paul Revere cabinet-making tradition. And uh, it's, it's beginning to be a, a national mania. And you'll find that young men in their early 30s are buying uh, old farms up in places like Vermont. And uh, they very carefully, at the cost of $274,000, go back to the basic, simple roots of American life. And uh, among other things, they're getting very excited about uh, what, uh, you know, any farmer for years has taken as part of his working tools and trade, you know, pickup trucks. You know that at one of the uh, major places in town here, uh, for one of a better name, we'll call it Abercrombie and Fitch, by God, do you know that you can buy a wonderful Model A at the Abercrombie and Fitch, a Model A Ford, I'll never forget my Aunt Agatha had this wonderful little Model A Ford, which she received as a graduation gift from Sarah Lawrence when she was a child. And uh, by God, I've always wanted to have one, and I bought one the other day at Abercrombie and Fitch. And you know, they're, not, they're rather, actually quite reasonable, you know. You don't pay much more than you'd pay for, say, uh, oh, uh, an old Tornado uh, for this new model, $4,700. It's just wonderful. And it's going back to your roots in style. You see, no one will ever go back to the roots because the roots are awful uncomfortable. But the, to go back to the roots in style, that's the essence of it all. And so you go out and you buy yourself a pickup truck that has naugahyde alligator upholstery in it and uh, has air conditioning, automatic shift, and the whole bit. And uh, this is part of, uh, of this... Uh, well, it's, it's kind of a galloping American dilettantism. And, uh, oh yeah, there are a lot of people who actually believe that, that Dylan, Bob Dylan, really speaks for the basic heart blood of Americana itself. Uh, he's real primitive, you know. And uh, <laughs> they never heard Elton Britt. And, uh, you know, <laughs> they never heard Chuck Acrian. Uh, you know, the real primitives, I'll tell you. And no, oh, by the way, this crowd always hates Elvis Presley, who was the only true primitive working in that field. And, uh, you know, really uh, uh, is, is saying it. So uh, he's telling me the story about this uh, pickup truck. I'll make the station break right now. It's WOR. We're in New York. And uh, this is Radio Free New York, friends. And we're working away against it all, whatever it is. I I'd like to salute all the dilettantes out there. Uh, you know, you see the dilettantes, especially in the world of the camping. I love to rough it. And uh, I tell you, I just enjoy my Dodge Land Yacht. Of course, he's got $27,000 worth of luxury. 
He has an air-conditioned stand-up shower. <laughs> I mean, you really get that, you know. He's got picture windows that look into other picture windows. You know, it's a fantastic operation, and I'd love to get out there. It's nothing like the land. Well, uh, there are thousands of them. And the New York variety of it, the Manhattan variety of the primitive, a guy returning to the primitive state, is, uh, Chuck, I found this wonderful loft, the most marvelous loft on East 57th Street. A loft on East 57th Street. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he restores it to its original shape. And that cost him $34,000 a square foot. And he's returning to his uh, roots. Well, now, uh, when, when, when this guy told me about this pickup truck, and uh, he said, uh, you know, there's something so marvelously real. And I want to tell you, I drove that pickup truck before I decided which one I was going to buy. And I just took it out on the track, you know, and we drove it around. And I just want to tell you that driving a pickup truck is an exciting experience. Have you ever driven one? Have I ever driven one? Well, I want to tell you, I didn't tell him, see, because when you're with a certain kind of person, you have to pretend that you, too, know the whole world of Lawrenceville very well. And uh, there's nothing more exciting to you than handball. And you love Joe Namath. This is part of that scene, too. You, you just got to love George, uh, George uh, or Joe Namath. And, of course, your favorite writer, I just think George Plimpton writes the most wonderful things about sport. And uh, <laughs> I can't get through three paragraphs of, of Plimpton without, uh, to quote Dorothy Parker, wanting to flow up. Uh, to me, uh, George Plimpton is the Winnie the Pooh of the sports world, and uh, I, I could, <laughs> I've heard I've heard real ball players of that just you know they just they just flip when you mention the name Plimpton, and uh, but nevertheless it's just the sort of thing to hand the troops they love it, and so uh, yeah there are whole kinds of totems you must uh, buy you. I believe the New York Commentary on Books is the finest publication that America has yet produced. And Susan Sontag is probably our foremost thinker today. And so these are all the things you have to, you have to pick up, you know, put down. And, and uh, oh, of course, that McLuhan is a charlatan. We all know that. Now, Norma Pedaritz, he, and uh, these are the little things, ding, 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 pop, 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 little Christmas trees lighting up in your head. And these are all the things you have to, you have to accept as a part of the, part of the game, the jungle game we play. And it's not an easy game, but it's a game. And so, uh, when my friend told me the story about the pickup truck, I debated in my mind whether to tell him what I really know about pickup trucks, or whether just to uh, feign interest in this uh, vapid. I can understand why the troops are rioting in the streets. I mean, really. <laughs> I mean, it's beginning to slowly begin to seep in to my to my turgid brain. But uh, I'm debating whether or not to tell them what I really know about pickup trucks and pickup trucks I have known, or just uh, order another uh, Singapore sling and pretend that I'm 
interested in his story. Well, being basically chicken, I opted for the latter. And so, uh, three Singapore slings later, and, uh, and five courses of bad Chinese food later, I am out in the, the uh, musty, aromatic atmosphere of Manhattan. And I could see the crud, the Jersey crud, drifting down out of the Aurora Borealis. And the cigar butts of, one of, the, of that great herd of, of genuine truck drivers are scattered along 6th Avenue. And I could see these guys, you know, block after block. You know how it is at, at the 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon on 6th Avenue. You see nothing but trucks, the mile after mile of them. And real truck drivers sitting in there, bejowled little beady blue eyes sitting in there and obscene stuff written on the side of their truck and uh, almost every truck I ever see these days for some crazy reason has written on the, on the back bumper way up on the somewhere near the top of the big doors that open up somebody has written in yellow chalk vote conservative have you noticed that on all the trucks I don't know what this is all about conservative what and, uh, nevertheless there they are these real truck drivers and they're sitting there with their arms casually hanging out, and I'm wa I'm walking along with my dilettante friend. You see, with his uh, his $178 overcoat and his uh, his uh, $46 English shoes, and uh, you know he had this uh, you know this this look of a man who's just made a a, a a a statement. He's he's returned to his roots. How are you, George? We're talking about the difference between the real people and the others. See, and. Uh, <laughs> and that, well, that's a big subject, isn't it? And so we're walking along, and I see this truck driver, see? And uh, he's leaning halfway out of the window, and right below him is a VW. And the VW is blocking him from turning left, and that's bugging him, see? So he looks out, and he goes, whoop-tooey, and right on the roof of the car, see? <laughs> I mean, this is a real truck driver. And my friend, my friend, who is the... Uh, was the dilettante type with the with the the reconstructed farm up in Vermont who's bought himself this pickup truck. I'm wondering whether he knows anything at all about the world of trucks. Whether he even has the slightest hint what the world of trucks is about. And the excitement of the pickup truck. Well I'm gonna tell you a story which I would never tell him. And I don't I don't want you to pass this over to the Johnny Carson crew. If Mike Douglas ever finds out that I am an ex-truck driver, I'll never work again in this business. You have to pretend you were always in showbiz, you know, from the start of your life. I'm going to tell you the time when a pickup truck provided me with the most, well, probably the most fantastic <laughs> educational experience I had up to that point. I am working in the mail room of the biggest steel mill in northern Indiana. And as far as you could see, mile after mile out there in the darkness, stretched the mill, the tin mill, the plate mill, the number one AC shop, the open hearth, the blast furnace. These are all departments in a steel mill, friends the 40-inch soaking pit, the 10-inch merchant mill, the 14-inch merchant mill, the 100-inch plate, the cold strip, the hot strip, the tin mill. 
You don't know the difference between the cold strip and the hot strip, and it isn't exactly what you think. The hot strip is not an act that plays down on 14th Street in the burly queue. <laughs> I mean, this is another scene. Well, this is my world, see. Now, in every world, I don't care how low down the scale you go, there is a packing order. There is what you could call the establishment in every world. You go down to the basic infantry squad, and there's eight yardbirds sitting around. Now, you would assume that these are yardbirds. They are yardbirds only to the untrained eye. There is always one yardbird that has rank over all the other yardbirds. You agree? He's hipper. He's tougher. <laughs> or you name it, whatever it is. There is no such thing anywhere in life as equality. There isn't. Because of the nature of human beings. That's just, it's nothing to do with America, Bangkok, or Greenland. It is the nature of human beings. Get six guys together, and within five minutes, one guy's running the show. Equality? Don't kid yourself. He will run the show on behalf of equality. He will say, now look, you guys, I know more about equality than the rest of you, right? So I'm going to run it. Therefore, killing the whole scene. I mean, it's just the way life is. I'm not making any editorialize. It's life, see. Well, in the mail room, way down at the very bottommost rung of this fantastic steel mill that had 28 trillion guys working in it. In fact, every shift, and they had three shifts, worked 24 hours a day. Every shift, 17,000 guys would come to work. 17,000 different guys. So you can imagine, you know, what a, what a, it was like a, a whole giant beehive of a city, all self-contained. And it had its own little mores and rules, and it had its own attitudes. It even had its own way of dress. If you arrived, say, working for a labor gang, and you were wearing a very out, unhip pair of overalls, everybody in the labor gang knew, man, you had no business here. That's the truth. There was there were certain kind. You, you wear a certain kind of hat a certain way. It was all part of the, you know, just the style. It occurred to you that there is style among construction workers? That's right. There's a certain way. Oh, well, there's a certain way to wear that hat, that yellow hat. And that you can always tell the new guys their yellow hat is real shiny. And uh, they, they wear it right on the top of their head, see? And uh, they're all automatically put down by the rest of the guys. Like the other day, I'm watching the football game, see? And, it's, uh, and uh, the, the ball club was, uh, I believe... Uh, Mm. Detroit. Now, the Detroit Lions been around for a long time. And there was a quick shot of the line. I'm talking about the, the defensive line. Now, the defensive line, these are the really tough guys on a football team. I mean, these are the men. I mean, the quarterbacks are the boys. And the, these are the men. See? There was a quick shot of the front four of the Detroit Lions, and there was one guy stood up, after a scrimmage, he stood up, a big pile up, and he gets up, and uh, he walks back, and, you know, and he hitches up his pants and sticks his shirt in the back. He's just made his 34th consecutive tackle, and, you know, he, 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 he counts a successful season by the number of halfbacks he breaks up. 
the number of knee operations he causes. See, it's he got a little. <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine a tackle? And on the side of his helmet, he's got painted little knees. <laughs> you know, like uh, like uh, you know, like the number of airplanes you shot down. He's got little knees painted on the side there. Well, he gets up, see, and there was a quick. They dollied the camera in while these guys getting up, and you could see three or four guys getting up, and they had these real shiny red helmets, beautiful looking helmets, you know. Now it wasn't. I don't think it was Detroit. Uh, it doesn't matter. The, the, the ball club had red jerseys, and they had red helmets. And this one guy got up, and here was his helmet. And it was all completely scratched. You could just see little patches of red paint all over it. And you could see the bare plastic on the bottom of it. And the number, which was on the side, you know, like number 75, half of his number was peeled off. He had a real, a real raunchy helmet, you know, it was real kicked around. Now, obviously, you could see among football players a, a lineman with a helmet that's all kicked and battered and chewed up. This is far hipper than the guy who's got the brand new helmet right out of Sears. You know, it's all shiny. And, uh, he got up. Well, this is the way it is in, 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 in laboring gangs. So if a guy has a helmet, you know, that yellow hat, and it's all dented and banged in, and, it, and you could see where rivets hit him on the back of the head, you know, and there's a place where it was been burnt by the acetylene torch, this is a guy who's right in there pitching, see? And so this is a very hip thing. In fact, I used to see guys would get their yellow helmets in the steel mill. See, we all had to wear these helmets. It was part of the regulations. And they would get a new helmet because uh, they lost their old one or it got busted or something. And they're very bugged because they've got a new helmet. So they would take it down down to the 14-inch merchant mill, and they would dip it in oil and bang it on the cement <laughs> that was all scratched. And they would scratch initials all over the outside. Then they'd put it on. See, then they felt comfortable. And so, down at the very beginning of life, there are styles, and there are little symbols that other guys can tell. And I'm working in the, in the mail room. Not a mail room, see, covered the entire mill. But this tremendous series of routes, there were eight of them, and each one of us had to learn every route right down to the last man. And we would, we'd be, Sorting the mail every day. See, we're sorting the mail. Now, this was interplant mail as well as U.S. mail, but mostly interplant. And so we'd have these great gobs of brown envelopes, you know, with all the lines on it, interplant communication. And we had to know every man, like I would say, uh, Smith, Drop Forge. Well, you knew that Smith was in the Drop Forge shipping office, not in the Drop Forge mailing office. And so, yeah, this is a tremendous thing. It took six months to learn the routes. Okay. Now, there was one very, very top route, completely. It was like on the top of the whole scale. And the top kid in the mailroom drove a pickup truck. That was the top kid. And every day, he would go out with a great big pile of stationery, because part of the mailroom was the stationery department. And he would go out every day with a big load of stationery piled up in the pickup truck. It had these little panels on the side. And the stationery was all kinds of stuff like forms and envelopes and rubber bands and stuff. And this kid was the top male boy in the mill. Top dog. He owned that mill. Right in his hand. And the guy who did it was named Ernie Roller. Big Ernie. Big round face. And at the age of 18, he was an inveterate 
tobacco chewer. In fact, oh, yeah, I mean, he's really on top of it, see. He'd sit in the front seat of his pickup truck, and we would load the truck, see, all of us, and we're admiring Ernie Roller, see. And he's sitting in the truck, and he'd spit up, and, the, and he'd even make snotty remarks, like he'd say, uh, hey, Shepard, he said, don't forget them rubber bands. So those rubber bands for the number 10-inch AC shop. Big Charlie down is waiting for him. He knew all of all the guys in the mill, and they were all on equal terms. And he drove this beautiful green pickup truck. Well, the mill owns thousands of trucks. And on the side of each pickup truck, any kind of truck, they had this big insignia of the mill. We had a big steel silver eye. The mill was inland steel. A big silver eye on the side with a silver had a kind of a diamond around it, and that was the insignia. And that was somehow, that was very official. It used to impress me, you know, like a guy driving his spad with a big, you know, a big tricolor on it. And so every day, Ernie would come in, he'd spit, you know, and he's chewing his tobacco, boy, he'd drive off into the mill, and he would disappear, and all the rest of us were impressed. Well, month by month, each male boy would get sent out to a job. They used to take the male boys and assign them to jobs in the mill when their tenure as a male boy was over. And each month, there would be attrition. Month, month, and month went by. And one day, I am now the number two male boy in the department. Yeah, it's a great feeling. And it's like... Number two male boy. And I could pick my route every day I would come in. and at the, Because I was a number two male boy, they would give me the choice of what route I wanted to take out of the eight. And the other guys had to take what they were assigned to. That was what, the little prerogatives of rank. Now, the average guy watching the male boys would just say, Ah, there comes a male. I was not a male kid. I was the number two male boy in the department. Very different. And I had a new leather sack and the whole bit. I'd wear the corduroy hat and... Ernie is driving his truck every day, and the two of us, he'd be, even begin to talk to me, you know, call me by my first name, because I've been around now. One day, one fantastic day, I arrived at work, and I had just really learned how to drive, and cars were tremendously exciting to me, and watching the way Ernie would wheel that, that pickup truck around was always... One of the high moments of my day, he'd back it up to the shipping dock and he'd whistle around and he'd slide it around in the dirt, you know. Oh, just, he just, he, it was like it was growing out of him, this pickup truck. And Ernie had a kind of a legendary quality about him anyway. By the way, I'll tell you what later happened to Ernie. It's a wild story. Ernie later became a commando. Yeah, a real live commando. He's the only genuine commando I ever knew. And uh, Ernie was involved in the Dieppe raid on a long... This is another story. We won't even get into that. But uh, at this point, Ernie is driving his pickup truck and spitting his tobacco juice out of the window, wheeling that truck around with that assurance. And I came to work one day, just like any other day. It was 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. I'm ready to go to work, and it's a cold day was in late November, early December, because it was winter out. I know it was cold, always cold in the mill. And uh, it was gray, and 
a little slight snow drifting down. I walk down the steps into the mail room, and there is the chief with this old man who ran the whole mail department. He'd been there ever since. Well, he, they, they say that he was there during the Bronze Age, before they had steel. You know, he, he was there when they were making arrowheads. And his name was Arnold Moss, like the actor. Always wore a hat and a vest. He was one of those guys in the, in the office, that, that, that white-haired type, who live in the office. You, you can't imagine him having a, a life outside of the office. And Mr. Moss called me over to his desk that morning. He said, Shepard, I want you to go to the garage. Do you have a driver's license? Yeah. I couldn't believe what was happening. He said, I want you to go to the garage and pick up our new truck. I said, pick up our new truck? He said, yes, the mill has just assigned a brand new truck to us. It's never been driven. I want you to go down and pick it up. And from now on in, you've got the truck route. One fell swoop. I've got the truck route. And I've got to go down to the garage, which was only four or five buildings away from us, and pick up the new truck. And with that, Moss picks up his phone. He dials the garage and says, there's a kid named Shepard. Give him the new truck. Is it already lettered? You could hear Okay. It's all all been serviced, everything ready to go into action, right? We'll send him back with the with the uh, with the checks and the bill on it and make sure that you got all the numbers recorded, right? He'll be down in five minutes. He looks up at me and says, Well, go down and pick the truck up. Ask for George at the garage. And I take off like a shot. I go down that street, that street in the middle of the mill, and the trains are roaring, and I can feel the ground, the thunderous ground next to the blast furnace, and the merchant mill is belching smoke to the sky. This is one of the great moments of my life. And I arrive at the garage, tremendous garage, and they had all the trucks in the whole mill in this garage. It, the, the garage must have covered a mile square. And they had trucks, and they had lifters and loaders and all kinds of moving equipment. And there, sitting right by the door, ready to be picked up, was the most beautiful sea-green Chevrolet pickup truck, three-quarter ton, I have ever seen in my life. And there's a guy walking around. He's putting stuff into the, into the engine. He's got the hood up, and he's been checking the plugs or something, you know, when a company buys something like that, they put all their own equipment in it. And there she sits. When I walked in, I couldn't believe that this was for us. Had a big brand new insignia painted on the door, big eye, big silver eye with a big silver, big silver diamond around it. And underneath it was the number 239. You know, they always number these trucks, all, number 239. I remember that to my last day. And it was in gold leaf, you know, those, this gold kind of lettering. Sea green, beautiful truck. And I walk in to the little office, and there's a man sitting behind the desk. And I said, are you George? He said, yep. You're Shepard from the mailroom? I said, yes. He said, here. And he tosses me the keys. I caught him in midair. Brand new. Do you know that nobody in my family, to my knowledge, up to that point, 
had ever driven a new car. My old man was strictly used car. He thought of cars in terms of being used. That new cars were something other people got in ads, not real people. And so I've got that beautiful set of keys in my hand. He said, take it easy with it. About a thousand miles should be broken in when you get that thousand on it. Bring her back and we'll check the oil. We've got break-in oil in it. Break-in oil. Isn't that an exciting thought? Break-in oil. Hold her down. And then he said, it's got a governor in it. You probably won't be able to get her up over maybe 40, 41, 42 miles an hour, but uh, don't push it. Keep it under 35 for the first 500, and then after that, bring her up to four, maybe 40. Bring it in at 1,000. And he hands me the papers. And then he turns, and he hollers out the door. He says, hey, Bob, the kid's here for, for 239. You got 239 ready to go? And this guy, yeah. Out the door I go. They pay no attention to these guys thousands of trucks a day, you know, they do what a truck, you know. I get in the front seat of that truck and it smelled beautiful and had this had this kind of plastic brown leather upholstery all around, you know, had a had a beautiful black molded steering wheel. And I look at this I can't believe it, on the on the speedometer, it said two point nine miles. This baby has just been wheeled off the truck. I put the key in, I turn it, brum. What a feeling. And I take that gear shift and I ease it into first. I let that clutch out. I roll out into the into the air for the first time. The gray air and that shiny hood and there were little stickers all over like uh, the instructions on what to do with the antifreeze and all that stuff. And I drive out into the, into the company street and I go rolling down towards the mail room. I pull up in front of the mail room and I put the brakes on. She stopped like whipped cream, you know? And I take it out of first. And Arnold Moss, the boss, comes out. He says, how's she look? I said, it'll do. He said, all right. He walked around. He looked at it. He says, give me the papers. Now, they had papers, you see. Each mill, each department was charged with the truck that it got. And he had to sign these papers and send it back that we now owned truck number 239, and here it is, and it had arrived in good condition. He said, okay. He said, well, you might as well start the first run today. Well, the outside kid made three runs with the stationary a day, and he drove all over the mill, and the kid that got that job was supposed to know every inch of the mill, like the back of his hand. Well, I did. And I was ready. Boy, I was ready. And the other kids start loading up the pickup truck for its first trip out. And they load it in, see. And they were looking at me with big eyes. I get in, and I'm chewing my uh, spearmint, see, right there. My mind is, i got to start chewing the back, you know. <laughs> Ernie had been promoted to another department. I spit out the window, and I put it in first, and away I go towards the tin mill. Well, it was a great day. I'm driving around, I make the first trip like peaches and cream. And I'm beginning to feel it, you know. I'm beginning to push on the starter and I'm run that thing and I'm shifting down and shifting up and I'm beginning to spin the wheels a little bit and I'm feeling its truck. 
The second trip started out and was even greater because the sun came out. And I'm halfway through the trip, see? And off to my left is the rail mill. Off to my right is the 100-inch plate mill. Now, I was heading towards the blast furnace shipping dock, which was between these two places. Ordinarily, the road went all the way out around the rail mill and back to the shipping dock. I said to myself, oh, I know a shortcut. I know this mill, see? And I go between these two buildings. Now, I was straddling two railroad tracks. I go between these two buildings. Now I'm halfway through this, like a big canyon, and I cleared a wall on each side by about three feet. See, I'm driving along on my top of it. I spit out, when all of a sudden, around the window, I could see coming around, no, 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 all of a sudden, around that building, coming right at me is a gigantic diesel locomotive heading right towards me. <laughs> Big old diesel rolls right towards me and it goes. I want to tell you that horn was so loud it almost broke the windshield. And I'm in a sweat. I put it in reverse. I start backing up and I'm going boom, 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 boom. Well, this guy sticks his head out of the window and he starts to stop the train. He goes off on a siding and. Smashes in the side of the truck. And now I'm trapped between the two buildings. Between the engine and the building. And a guy looks out at me. A guy that's driving his thing. And he says, what the hell do you think you're doing, kid? Oh, I can't get out. I'm trapped. He said, all right, stay in there and sit still. And I can feel the heat from the train coming in through the window. My truck is now two feet wide. Well, two hours and 20 minutes later, they extricate me. My beautiful sea green truck is a total. I get to the telephone. I dial the mail room. Oh, I'll never forget that terrible feeling. I dial the mail room. I get Mr. Moss on the phone. I said, Mr. Moss. He says, I heard. Get back in here in 10 minutes. I heard. Oh, that was the last time I ever drove a pickup truck in the steel mill. I was put all the way down on Route 6. I spent the rest of my time in the mail room delivering letters to little old ladies that work in the shipping department. Oh, and there is not a day goes by but what I don't see a pickup truck on 6th Avenue. And I feel this little urge. I remember. And there's nothing more beautiful, friends, than a pickup truck with the smell of the new paint on her. And the feel of that nice, smooth, on-the-floor shift. And that sense of power and work. Oh. Yes, I think pickup trucks are very interesting. Marshall was.